Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is the United Kingdom, and joining me in conversation is Michael Lyon. Michael Lyon is an entertainer, broadcaster for Omaha Public Radio, KOS 91.5 FM, and a real estate investment consultant. He was born in Manchester, England, grew up in Cornwall, and spent 10 years in Bristol before moving to America to Los Angeles in 1981. He has lived in Omaha since 2000. Welcome to the show, Michael. Uh, Thank you, Stuart. Nice to be here. Uh, you know, when you said United Kingdom, I was suddenly struck with these visions of, of coming from a country that colonized half the world and, and felt slightly guilty about it, the United Kingdom. You know, it's, it's rather grand, isn't it? It is grand, but it might, by first appearances, seem quite easy to dismiss the United part. Mm-hmm. And what does United mean anymore? Well, exactly. I mean, uh, the Scots are constantly wanting to leave, and who can blame them? <laughs> They've got the oil. <laughs> They've got a good government, and they're they're up to the north, out of the way of everybody else. So, uh, I guess that you know, what's the American equivalent? Texas, California. Yeah, know? yeah. So let me ask then, uh, what what does community mean to you? When I think about community just in a a sort of a fairly generic overall sense, uh, you know, what I go to immediately is the component parts that have comprised my life over many years. And and, uh, first and foremost uh, is family and will always be. And then extended family, because within that uh, structure, there is a community. Uh, if one is lucky, you know, we help each other out. Uh, we care about each other, even when we don't like each other sometimes. And we we value the united nature of those particular relationships, and we do what's necessary to sustain them. To uh, a certain extent, I would say that uh, friends also by extension then comprise our community and sometimes we're closer uh, to those friends in certain ways than we are to family and then I would extend that beyond that to say acquaintances because in in thinking about this whole question of community I can't really do that without thinking about about that dreaded thing Facebook so um, you and I have a fairly good number of friends on Facebook I've got Oh, I don't know, a thousand and some that I've accumulated over time. And periodically I go through and I think, okay, you know, who can I, who can I ditch? And the answer is always nobody. Because for some reason I've got a connection to each one of those people. But it really makes me wonder what sort of a community I'm part of with that. Because uh, I have to say that I have not met... Oh, maybe 50% of the people with whom I'm friends on Facebook. And yet, I care quite deeply about some of these people. And the reason for that is maybe they overdisclose on Facebook. And, uh, and I get to know their families. I see pictures of their graduating kids. I hear, and this stabs me in the heart, I hear about the pets that they've had for 13 or 14 years that are as close as my own dog is to me, and and uh, I grieve with these people. Uh, I find it difficult sometimes to grieve with people over the death of a loved one because I don't quite know what to say, and that's very, very similar to what one would do actually in person. And so you actually have to sit and think, and then you wonder whether you're being a little too uh, emotional about somebody that you don't really know. And so I think there is that. I think there are those real relationships, but at the same time, you've got a, a reflection of the various kind of thoughts that circle around us in our physical community that are uh, distancing, um, you know, one person to another or one group to another. You have uh, quite um, aggressive, um, emotional and violent verbally discourse or or invective you know people that are ranting about one thing or another and 
some of that is sort of genuine, but some of it is is just garbage. It's uh, an unregulated, unmoderated discourse, and so I don't think uh, that Facebook is is really a very good medium for that. But I would say that's a very significant part of my my life. It's how I see into people's worlds, but. Community, uh, I think, in and of itself has to start with an individual and exactly what we think of people. How do we relate to people? How do we intend to conduct ourselves? Because that really rolls up to what happens uh, locally, regionally, globally, and and how we uh, conduct our lives and, and what sort of a legacy we will of action we will leave behind us you know it's interesting that you talk about the community that is facebook and around 50 percent of your own facebook friends you haven't met in person but you formed a meaningful connection with those people while at the same time recognizing that this same platform is replete with people that uh, as you say are expressing garbage and that seems to be the quandary and you mentioned that this unmoderated invective on Facebook exists, but I also suspect it's not the kind of language, or it didn't used to be the kind of language that we would use in person with people. We are navigating what it means to be in community physically and in community virtually. Well, I, I absolutely agree, and I also feel even more than that, that community is the same at a, a, a relatable level, one person to another or one group to another, regardless of the country, country you're in uh, or the, uh, the demographic stratum um, or income level. You know, there are human characteristics that we share that... Uh, that are governed, or where our actions, I should say, are governed by our uh, our fears, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of others, and and how we're willing to uh, conduct ourselves. And so, you know, if you if you extrapolate that out, and you look at the times where uh, genocide has occurred, um, with with the uh, the Jews, for example, living side by side in villages in uh, in European or Eastern Bloc countries prior to or during the Second World War, um, who were uh, targeted and and murdered by residents of a particular town because they had the license. It's a frightening thought within a community that 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 lack of understanding. Uh, of community and the lack of acceptance of of other human beings can lead to those incredibly violent acts. So I, I'm sort of conscious of that on a global level, but I I also think that that those things derive from uh, human responsibility, individual responsibility. You and I are both British expatriates. Uh, living in the United States. You've been living in the United States much uh, longer than I have. And in this period of time, nonetheless, our distance from the United Kingdom has shrunk, I think. I'll because say. of Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And in that sense, uh, later on the show, we'll be hearing uh, a conversation with Debbie Morgan, who is living in London now. But my connection with Debbie has been facilitated and enhanced over the last decade or more through the use of Facebook and other technology. And I'm wondering how your own sense of distance from the United Kingdom has shifted over time. Well, it's very, very hard for me to to get an objective grasp of that because I've been here for 36 years now in the United States, 20 years in Los Angeles, uh, 16 years in, in Omaha. When I think about England, 
I find myself tending to think about the snapshot of England that I left in 1981, where VCRs had just hit the retail shelves. And I've made several trips back, and I'm constantly surprised that, you know, they're they're actually technologically ahead of the U.S. on certain things. On one visit uh, several years ago, it might have been oh, 14 or 15 years ago, I was amazed uh, that my nephews were texting constantly because nobody really did that over here. And now texting suddenly is this is this huge thing. Um, the other thing is that my my view of England has become somewhat jaundiced because I've watched uh, movies that uh, that tend to be a post-apocalyptic in nature. And so, you know, they may show a view of, of England, I'm thinking of 28 days later, 28 weeks later, um, where... Uh, you know, the the villains are all dressed in punk clothing. It's a sort of a Mad Max meets uh, Manchester. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, you know, uh, fires are, are burning in, in the streets. People are warming their hands. And, and uh, you know, everything is, has just gone by the wayside, you know, after the bomb dropped. And then I visit... Cornwall, England, which is this beautiful, picturesque, agricultural county, which is to the very, very uh, far southwest of England. And I visit my uh, childhood home, which was eight miles from the sea. And I I think about those uh, villages where you have to park a mile outside the village and walk in because the streets are too narrow in some instances to get cars in or certainly to contemplate that two cars would meet going in the opposite direction. And then you walk down cobbled streets and you are in uh, the, the type of village that could have existed two or even 300 years ago in a different uh, sort of sense. Um, but not much has changed about the architecture, you know. So the, uh, the permanence of those stone dwellings are something that, that I think about often. Uh, the, uh, the smell of the salt air of the seaside, the sound of the seagulls, these are all embedded in my, uh, my genes or at least my, my psyche going way back there. I love to see the English hedgerows. Uh, it's very different as you drive through Nebraska. You can see farmland for miles and uh, it's not really delineated to a large extent except by color, depending on the type of crop, you see cattle frequently standing in a brown postage-sized stamp of a feedlot. Not always, for sure. Um, but, you know, if you want cattle to be corn-fed rather than grass-fed, you have to sequester them and feed them corn. And uh, my most pleasant memories of England, I had this growing up, I've had this on, on visits back there again, are, are the, the, the cattle grazing in the fields and the sheep and, and Beethoven's pastoral symphony is playing in my mind, you know, and to some extent that does go back to uh, English uh, traditions, that type of music being, um, even though it's Beethoven, woven through um, English life, the uh, music uh, of Mozart being sung by small village groups, uh, the brass band playing in the bandstand. So it was there was a different type of uh, of community, and those things actually do exist still uh, in much the same manner as they always have.
So in some ways, you're giving voice to a sense of nostalgia, which could be just an illustration of how you and I feel, either because of our age or because of our distance from uh, the place that is the United Kingdom or our distance metaphorically from the place that we think of as the United Kingdom. But then there are those contemporary aspects of life in the United Kingdom, which of themselves are unchanged for 500 years. So it's not nostalgia, it just is. How do we distinguish between what we think of as the English or United Kingdom community now from our sentiment about what it is? Well, I, I accept and appreciate how much things have changed. And I would say that personally, uh, throughout my life, I found that as I've moved from place to place, I leave the old place behind. Now, I, I don't know why this, this is. Maybe it's uh, some kind of a sort of emotional uh, protection, or maybe it's a really positive thing, and I move on, and I don't think about those things. But I have found in going back to Los Angeles or back to England, but England especially, that uh, memories and emotions awake within me on, on an almost involuntary basis. And um, uh, just about a month ago, I went back to London, picked up my two nephews, uh, my wife and I, and they drove to Manchester and I attended a Lion family reunion. And we came from the Midwest, and uh, a cousin came from Nova Scotia, another one came from Spain, and, and uh, different parts of the United Kingdom. And I saw people that I hadn't seen for a good 40 years. But I felt a sense of real belonging of gratitude that that this was happening and uh, a sense of being very very present in that emotion back here in omaha it, it took me a week or two to actually just settle down and get on with with the essence of of life you know but that that is something that i found is that i move on and i leave it behind so i tend to get these these little things that, that just pop up from time to time that as a, a distant memory or maybe just a, a wistful feeling. So you talked about community in terms of relationships and you talked about family, friendships, acquaintanceships, and they're, they're very conceptual. They're about emotional and psychological attachments more than they are geographic ones. Nonetheless, memories can be shaped by the places that we um, are from. Mm -hmm. and the environment that we uh, attach those memories to. So you had an upbringing based in Manchester. Uh, for three years, then we moved to Cornwall, and I left Cornwall at 17. So Cornwall really is the place that you would have formulated your character um, from age three to 17. Well, to some extent, except for the fact that my mom and dad talked in the house like this. So I talked like this all the way up through high school and still would bring some of it up again. But down in Cornwall, they talked like this. So I'd leave, I'd leave the house talking like this, you know, and I'd go to school and I'd talk like this. And it was, that's followed me my, my whole life. Um, the uh, ability to, to shift between dialects in order to feel comfortable. How did that feel, given that we're all trying to seek a sense of belonging in, in the place that we exist? And it sounds as if, to some degree, that you were deliberately putting on um, a facade, a face, um, you're wrapping a cloak of uh, the local dialect or demeanor about you so that you could get that sense of belonging. But did you feel as if there was some dishonesty or that you weren't oh, really being absolutely. yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I think that was just due to uh, youth and uh, not really understanding why I would gravitate towards that. Um, and as I've uh, grown older, I just accept it. I accept the fact, dialect-wise, I'm this weird hybrid, uh, and I, I've just had to learn to live with it and go for the uh, go for the flow. You can only imagine what it was like with me being in Manchester, my two nephews who taught, you know, they live in London, so when I was with them, I'm talking like this, you know what I mean? Because I just couldn't help slipping into it. And uh, 
you know, when I was with my Manchester family, it was very much broader. And part of my Manchester family is they talk like this, but they're quite posh, you know. So it, it's sort of like this. And then I, I got together with, that was my dad's side of the family. And then I got together with my mum's side of the family. And they're, hi, how you doing now, Michael? All right, you know. And so it, it's, it's just, I had fun. I had fun with it, I, I have to say. Uh, I have an observation which really kind of covers dialects that one might hear in England. Uh, and I would say that it's my assumption that dialect keeps us comfortable in a community. You know, that if you want to be comfortable in that community, if you want to gain acceptance, uh, you utilize the, uh, the phraseology of that particular area and certain very, very specific terms. Now, interestingly, though, in England, and it's changed somewhat over the last several years, if you went to Scotland or London, which have very pronounced dialects, or Manchester, the north of England, and you were on the phone with somebody from that area, you would not be able to tell for the most part whether they were white, black, Asian, or, or any other ethnic background because um, particularly first-generation immigrants would adopt the specific language uh, of the area. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. People try to put us to just because we get around Talking about my generation Things they do look awful Talking about my generation I hope I die before I get old Talking about my generation my generation, my generation baby Why don't you all fail away Don't try and dig what we all say I'm Stuart Chittenden. The theme of this week's show is the United Kingdom. Joining me in conversation is Michael Lyon. Do do you ever feel when you're back in the United Kingdom as if you are no longer at home? No, I don't, but I feel like I'm inhabiting a different persona. And that's okay. I think I've inhabited many personae over time, and uh, it, it is, it's perfectly okay. It's all part and parcel of the same me. I would say that my own experience of being an expat and going back to uh, the United Kingdom has always been the sensation of, uh, you know, a hand going into a, a, an old comfortable glove or, yeah. you know, foot in slipper. It's, it's just a natural uh, fit to my character. And- you don't find that ever unnerving. No, what I found unnerving was traveling back to the United Kingdom last May, a month before the Brexit referendum, Hmm. and it taking me a discomforting three days to have that feeling. And it was terribly unnerving to recognize that what had seemed to be an innate sense of community now was absent, and it took a few days for that to reappear. And then, of course, um, one month later, 
the uh, United Kingdom voted to um, to depart from the European Union. And where I was visiting at that particular time was in the southeast of England, which which is very close, the closest part of uh, England to Europe. And uh, the uh, Nigel Farage is one of the uh, n- sort of notorious Brexit proponents, and his MEP district is is in that part of uh, uh, of England. So no surprise that some of their uh, really potent Eurosceptic sentiments were there and I I don't know if it's fanciful thinking on my part that my sensation of not feeling in community for those first few days was a reflection on the fact that there were some ruptures happening in what I regarded as community. I don't know if that sounds recognizable to you in any way, shape or form. Well, it it does. And uh, the time that I've spent over there um, in England uh, over the last several years has, has not been extensive enough for me to really jump in the water you know it's uh, i've had some whistle stop visits and uh, so yes there there is that and and my feeling about that is that it's part and parcel of of a growing global unease with each other and and a shift towards um uh nativism populism isolationism and I think those are things that are, you know, affecting our society as a whole in, in great manner. Now, the outcome of that, I don't know. You know, maybe we'll destroy the earth because of those uh, types of things. Although, you know, George Carlin said the earth really doesn't need us. It will... You know, we'll we'll destroy it so far, and then it will spit us out and regenerate itself. So, um, you know, in the larger scale of things, <laughs> we can we can only hope that our children and their progeny will be will have a a good world to live in, and will carry the 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 torch on. You know, when we look at uh, at the rips in the fabric of what's going on around the world and we can see many of those same same things going on in every community i think that in order for me to make sense of it i have to bring it down to an individual level and i really think of it as very black and white i think about it as fear and not fear or fear and love if you prefer uh, and that's easily understandable for me. You know, we we fear not being loved, not being accepted. We fear being shut out socially. We fear uh, violence sometimes as a part of that. We fear not being able to hold and grasp onto something which we regard as ours by divine right. And I'm talking about property or feelings or, or, or anything which we feel we can hold on to. And so I think that, that fear drives many, many individuals. It drives me. So I think there's a, uh, you know, we, we, f- we fear the loss of ourselves due to some other person. And I think when we look at people, we fear the differences. I mentioned fear and I mentioned love, and I think love is simply doing the right thing. It's not an emotional kind of love. I think if you love somebody, if you act with love, you have a set of principles, you stick to them, you deal with people according to those principles with the understanding that you don't know the circumstances of a lot of people's lives and that you should always be willing to um, to think that this person may have it a lot worse than than they appear on the surface. Nothing you can do 
sing that can't be sung Nothing you can say but you can learn how to play the game you leave the United Kingdom to move to Los Angeles? Had family there. <laughs> Short and sweet. And I arrived and it was, uh, it was a monsoon Los Angeles rain. And, uh, but the next day, February, I opened the drapes and the sun was shining. There wasn't a cloud in the sky and it got up to about 73 degrees. And I said, well, this is all right. <laughs> And what and was the lure? Was was the lure similar um, to yeah. maybe, you know, that pioneering spirit of of you know, hundred two hundred years ago? There seemed to be riches and excitement to be had. Well, there was because at the time that I lived in England, you know, I was watching on the television Starsky and Hutch and the Rockford Files, and uh, several of these these other shows, and suddenly, I was in the movie actually in the movie from the time that e even when we had a stopover at Kennedy Airport and you know I was used to seeing the British bobbies with their truncheons and their their tall hats now suddenly here here's a, a cop with a real gun and the, uh, the the taxi cabs were all yellow around there and and it was oh my goodness you know I'm here I'm I'm actually in this and uh, my my sense of actually being on a movie set persisted for years and years and years. And then, of course, going to Los Angeles. I remember some family members uh, took me out to the um, Century Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles, and we had a wonderful dinner. And, and uh, when we came out, uh, there were the three or four of us waiting for the vehicle, and out behind us came Marvin Hamlish, you know. And uh, it, it, it's just that... It was surreal. Which makes me wonder then about the perceptions that Americans have of the United Kingdom. Now, we're expats. Even we are succumbing to some of the tropes about this picture of what the United Kingdom is. But from your perspective, how is um, the United Kingdom seen from, from this side? Well, I don't think people really understand it. Uh, we are, after all, two nations divided by a common language. I think that was attributed to Churchill, but he may not have been the first one that said that. We are certainly divided by sports. Um, a friend of mine once said to me that he couldn't understand how anyone could watch a game like soccer, which ended up with only one goal scored or sometimes no goal scored. Um, and even the one goal wasn't sufficient for it to attract him. And I said, well, you watch basketball. And he said, yes. I said, well, I don't personally understand how you can watch a game that, that goes for whatever time it does. And one team gets 119 points. The other team gets 120. Because really what you're watching for is that one point. Um, you know, so there's that kind of parallel. Um, I don't talk much about England these days uh, because I, I think that to some extent it would just be, well, it was like this at home, you know. In England, we do it differently. So I don't <laughs> – I'm very conscious of not wanting to get into that and wanting to be here and uh, be acclimatized or acclimated uh, to this. 
And so most of the time when uh, when people talk to me about England or I talk to them, uh, I'm talking with uh, Anglophiles of one form or another. Their perception of England may not be quite the same as, as mine. Sometimes, though, they've actually been over there and they love uh, Bath uh, or um, London or, or whatever part, Wales, you know, and... Um, but even talking with uh, with people, they don't necessarily have the same uh, sort of psychic connection that I do. It's more of a sort of a, a quaint place. I have to confess, of course, I've asked you the question, and yet the truth is that we are not able to speak of the United Kingdom. We, we, we have no standing to talk of the United Kingdom as if we are uniquely qualified to categorize it completely. Because right. we, we, of course, are subjective in, in our own experiences. And I'm especially hesitant now to assert any kind of credibility in this, given how aware I am that both in America and in the United Kingdom, there is a more palpable sense of division, a more palpable sense of them and us. And I, I think we've taken the Band-Aid off some of these brewing polarized well we have but i don't know that that sense of division is new uh because you've certainly for many many years had a class structure in england the development of the trade unions uh the rise of the working class um and the sort of uh enmity i wouldn't say hatred but certainly enmity that exists between uh, those people. And I can tell you from personal experience, one evening working a night shift at a job, I picked up a copy of, of that um, magazine of the, the upper classes called The Tatler. <laughs> and, and here was this wonderful article which uh, described, uh, here was a picture of Colonel and Lady Wentworth Rump at the coming out of their daughter Daphne and I thought my goodness that's it you know I've always wondered about whether the monarchy was antiquated and I thought I don't mind about the monarchy more power to them you know they do a fantastic job and you know they're tax they're supported by the taxpayers it's not the man monarchy I mind it's all the hangers on you know uh that 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 sort of dribble down and in you know, ever diluting strains of of uh, of uh, peerage. <laughs> yeah. But what you had uh, over the, you know, I I remember, for example, some of these divisions have have come about, and they they frequently are uh, ethnic divisions. And as as happens with ethnic division, there's a big economic component to it. You know, Winston Churchill um, put out a call to the West Indies uh, for people to come over after World War II and help rebuild the country. And those people filled a lot of lower paying positions. So, you, you know, th this part of society, which I'm sure doesn't exist in exactly the same way today, by the time I was in uh, the working you know, in a work situation, beginning of my working life, that part of society filled a, a lot of low-paying jobs. And uh, again, I think looking at that um, from a sense of community, whether it's in England or the USA or anywhere else on the globe, that inability to reconcile ourselves uh, or one group with the differences of another, there is almost always a, a, a suppression uh, by one group over the other, economic disenfranchisement, lack of education of one group, whether that be by race or gender. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately the, the, the worst thing, uh, the sort of violence that can occur. Has being the local anchor for many years for National Public Radio's Morning Edition uh, here in Omaha, has that given you any stronger sense of feeling connected? A to tremendous, the tremendous sense. I mean, I, I can't even quantify how much, but 
first of all, it's it's essentially personal because in in good radio uh, practice. And training, you are told to speak one-on-one with the person at the other end, uh, at the side of the microphone. And if it's not a personal conversation, you're somehow missing the mark. I I totally agree with that. Uh, And so I'm connecting with several thousand people on a daily basis, the ones that I know and the ones that I don't know. And I can honestly say that I am speaking individually to each one of them. More than that, I've had the opportunity to interview people from all walks of life, from different organizations um, in the mornings, uh, several hundred, who have been involved in making our community better in some way. And so I've not only had the richness of that experience and the understanding of that, and and that has enhanced my sense of and connection with community, but I've also been able to gain more of the 35,000-foot view. What comes to mind when you think of the United Kingdom? Last night of the proms. (laughs) And for the uninitiated, this is a series of concerts held annually in London. It is the Edward, or Sir Edward Wood, I think, isn't it? Promenade concerts, Mm -hmm. uh, shortened to the proms. And on the last night of the proms, it's a... uh, gala affair uh, the audience uh, is dressed up in in the British flag the Union Jack but they are there to have fun the sense of community when, when one looks at that on YouTube is incredible and this all culminates at the end of the evening in the singing of Land of Hope and Glory Mother of the Free uh, which is uh, Elgar's and circumstance which they play at graduation ceremonies here but when you hear a, a an English crowd uh, a United Kingdom crowd of several thousand people singing with that um, it is nothing short of stunning and I have to say that I get a tear in my eye every single time conversation with Michael Lyon. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure.
You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. The theme of this week's show is the United Kingdom, and joining me in conversation is Debbie Morgan. Debbie Morgan was born in Liverpool and grew up in a small suburban town about nine miles outside of that city. At 18, Debbie went to university in Bangor, North Wales, and studied social administration. Debbie is now a public sector employment lawyer working in the City of London and lives in northwest London, where she has lived for the past 34 years. Uh, Debbie is joining me via phone from London in England. Debbie, thank you for joining me on the show. It's a pleasure. Talking about the United Kingdom, and in some ways it, it, it can be juxtaposed with uh, what's happening in America now too, but with Brexit, you can look at the electoral map, the referendum map, and, and then just see how stark are the divides between major metropolitan areas and those countries that were subjugated historically by England, you know, speaking you know, of, of Northern Ireland and, and, and Scotland uh, in particular, and how pro-Europe they are compared to um, more rural England. And I'm wondering if you are concerned at all for the fragmentation of the broader concept of community? I am really concerned. It's really... um, I couldn't believe that it it happened. I went to bed the the night of the um, the referendum. I'm thinking, oh, yes, this is going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. And I woke up and I thought, I cannot believe this. What's going on? And um, I don't feel the impact of it yet. I think I'm still in denial and still in shock. And uh, um, I I can't see what we're going to move to. Initially, it felt like we were in free fall. And it felt like, well, there was no plan B. Well, what's the plan B? And everybody's looking at each other going, well, I don't know. I didn't think this was going to happen. And that was that was scary. And then David Cameron resigned. And it was like, well... Hang on, hang on, you know, stick around and tell us what we do next. And and that wasn't happening. And the, there was a period of uncertainty. But then, I say, as I say, it's then nothing has happened. And then life goes on and we just carry on in the swing of our ordinary lives, our, our, our immediate lives and our immediate neighbourhoods and not thinking about the uh, longer-term consequences of, of, of the referendum. I like being part of a European community. I like that. But I also have friends who think it's the best thing that's ever happened. So there is a, there is a real divide. But I also think there's a divide, um, and you said rurally, but I think that there's a divide between North and South, and that quite a lot of people in, in the North of England, not Scotland, in the North of England voted to leave because they have nothing to lose that life in parts of uh, the northern cities in the UK is pretty grim because there are no traditional industries there's no manufacturing there's nothing going on so they see the people who live in London as being the people who are who are benefiting from the wealth in the country that all the it's very London centric the UK. My own sense is that that is slightly what happened in the in the US presidential elections too. A sense of desperation that anything is better than what's going on at the moment because lives are so tough for some people. Let me ask you this uh, question about 
the terrorist attacks in that case. So we've talked about Brexit mm. and that sense of uh, disengagement from Europe, disenfranchisement from uh, people's sense of opportunity. But with terrorism, that also is breaking up um, communities into tribes of um, ideology in some way. And of course, we're recording this shortly after the British snap general election, after the Ariana Grande terrorist bombing, Mm -hmm. after the Borough terrorist attack in South London. So what is your sense of what is happening to community in light of uh, those incidents? When you hear these these things on the news, it's it's so upsetting and it's so depressing. It, it's it's not you know what you want you want to hear. You want to hear about communities pulling together. And in fact, I think if, if anything, what happens after these incidents is encouraging. Again, like we were talking about the uh, the tower block. That, that's burnt down. The communities are pulling together afterwards and trying to show those minorities who are carrying out terrorist attacks that that is not what the majority of people in the community want and that that they don't represent a particular community. But that's what we want to do as communities in London is unite and say this, this isn't right and this isn't representative of us. There's a lot of slogans going around at the moment saying, you know, choose love. And I, re- and, and I really want to get behind that. And, you know, that's, that's what we want to be. We don't want to be uh, divisive and encouraging communities to dislike one another or to fight one another. It's bringing communities together and to be aware that we're all of our likenesses rather than our differences. With me in conversation from London in England via phone has been Debbie Morgan. Thank you, Debbie, for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.